Everyone, I had a bit of a uh, crisis of confidence as Damien started reading there. I thought, oh no, I've got the wrong chapter of Hebrews. Oh, that sounds really familiar, isn't that last week's passage? But it's because our, our morning church and 6th church have been out of sync for the last, but they're back in sync next week. But uh, just for a moment, I thought I was preaching on the wrong passage, but it's okay. But uh, do, if you take out your outline, do make sure you've got an outline that says Hebrews chapter 9 on it. You may find your perforated slip doesn't tear off the tear-off slip this week. Something happened there. At least mine doesn't. Uh, Mine's just going to tear my sermon notes in half. But uh, anyway, you can sort that out for yourself. You're all adults. Well, most of you are. And um, uh, But Hebrews 9 is what we're looking at. But before we start, I just want to say I am uh, so thankful to God for every one of you who served uh, in Kids Holiday Club during the week because I know how many people from 630 Church, in fact, from all our congregations, but especially from 630 Church, served and if ever there is uh, an event that captures what we're on about as a church it's kids holiday club so when we talk about what we're on about as a church we tell people we're on about uh, seeing God glorified and we do that by proclaiming Jesus by growing disciples and by serving together Uh, and at kids holiday club you just see all three of those things happening so wonderfully you see I mean 211 kids hearing the good news that Jesus loves them how amazing is that but also what excites me because I I don't do here's just a little secret I don't do anything at Kids Holiday Club. Uh, I, they always get me in the video eating. That's, that's the... Uh, and they, I had my back turned on this one. You just saw me as they came in on the video, but I was there having a coffee. Because uh, that's all I do is hang around and talk to people and so forth. But it's so amazing to see all of you guys, well, so many of you guys, uh, using the gifts God's given you to serve at Kids Holiday Club and doing that together. So it's wonderful. But let's pray and uh, let's look at Hebrews chapter 9. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Kids Holiday Club. We thank you that we have a message that is so important for people to hear, that Jesus is the King and that he has loved us by coming to die in our place and rise again to give us the hope of eternal life. So we pray for every one of those kids, whether they've heard that message a thousand times or it was the first time this week, uh, that they will now know more about Jesus' love for them. But Father, we pray for us now and uh, as we've heard over and over again in the book of Hebrews, Help us not to be like the Old Testament people who came before us. Help us not to harden our hearts to your word. Instead, help us to listen to it and respond to it by trusting it and believing it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you guys will find this astounding because I see so young to you all. But um, when I was at primary school, there were no computers at school. So when I started primary school, there were no computers. I don't think they even had a computer in the office to be frank, and I remember I went to a new school in year five, it was a private school, and they had computers. We had an hour a week of computer lab, uh, and there were five computers between 30 of us. So learning computers, you'd go in, and there'd be six of you sitting around the computer. It was always a fight. The biggest kid got to be on the computer, and the other kids missed out. Uh, And I remember all we ever did was play one really simple game, and it had no graphics, it just had words. Remember how computer games used to be like that? where they ask you a question, you just answer yes or no, and then ask you the next question. And it was called the lemonade game. And so basically you were setting up a lemonade stall and it asked you, how many lemons do you want to buy? And how much do you want to set the price for? And all that sort of thing. That was the extent of our computers at school. Even when I was at high school, we hand, still hand wrote our essays, even the ones you, you handed in. I remember... Uh, about year 10 on, for big assignments, my mother, God bless her, she would type them up for me on a typewriter. Uh, some of you don't even know what a typewriter is. but uh, So it wasn't, that's a typewriter up on the screen, just in case you don't know. Uh, and so it wasn't until I went to uni in the uh, 
early 90s that I would type up my assignments using the word processor on our Amstrad computer. I couldn't even find a picture of an Amstrad computer that was big enough to show on the screen, so that's something like it. I think it was uh, 256. What is it? I don't even know what computers have. What are those things? Kilobytes. It's, it's less powerful than your phone. Let's just say that. So there you go. If you go back to the typewriter, have a look at the typewriter. When you look at a typewriter, you can see how the computer came from the typewriter, can't you? You can see that the, the typewriter was the forerunner of the computer, at least for word processing and that sort of thing. Uh, but now that you've got the computer, let me tell you, you would never go back to a typewriter uh, because on the typewriter there was no spell check. And so every time you made an error, you know what you had to do? Even if you were on like the bottom line of the page, you had to rip out the bit of paper and start again. Or you had to use liquid paper. And when, the reason my mother took over typing my assignments is mine would end up about, the piece of paper would end up about 10 times thicker than it started. It had so much liquid paper. You know what liquid paper you still, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but anyway, the one satisfying thing about a typewriter actually was that sound it makes when you rip the paper out in anger. Because when your computer messes it up, you can't hit your computer because, you, you know... <laughs> That's a couple of thousand bucks. A typewriter, you can rip the paper, it makes this great sound and you, you could express your anger. Well, all of that is, the point is, you would never go back to a typewriter now that you've got a computer. And I want to say to you, that is something like the picture this chapter of Hebrews paints for us tonight. Old Testament religion was like the typewriter. It worked. Sometimes people think, uh, why did they have the Old No, the Old Testament did its job. It worked, but it was always pointing forward to something better. Uh, but now that the something better has come, you would never go back to the old way. That's the point of this chapter. Now that you have the new covenant brought by Jesus, we learned about last week, you would never go back to the, the typewriter of the Old Testament. Now, as we look at this chapter and as we look at the way the Old Testament works, some people will love it because it's exotic. Uh, it's interesting if you're into that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's wonderful when you make sense of your Old Testament but others might think, why do I need to know this? You know, it's just like a history lesson. If that's the old covenant, why do I need to know it? I want to encourage you, stick with it. It can be heavy going in the book of Hebrews, but stick with it. Because by understanding the old covenant, you actually come to know Jesus better. By understanding the old covenant better, it helps you actually understand what came next. And that is Jesus. So stick with me through it. But we're starting in the old. So our first heading is Old Covenant Ministry. And this is verses 1 to 10. So before Jesus, how did people approach God? Well, look at verse 1. It says, Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was set up. So in the Old Testament, you went to meet with God at the tabernacle, just like a tent that they carried around with them. Eventually that tent became a permanent building in Jerusalem, the temple, but it's the same thing. But the thing is, they didn't just decide, hey, that'd be a great way to meet with God. Let's build a tent and carry it around with us. No, God actually gave Moses totally clear blueprints on how to build this tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was actually a model here on earth of the heavens. I find this absolutely incredible. But when they went to that tent, it was designed to be a model, like a scale model, of the heavenly throne room where God dwells. So let's look back at last week's passage. Look back to chapter 8 from verse 5. 
It says, these serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. You can imagine as, as Moses is there, he's come down from the mountain, he's building the tabernacle. You can imagine people saying, oh, I think it should be a bit bigger, Moses. I think you should put that over there. I remember when we did the building project here, it was like every member of the church thought they had a point of view. They could share about where that light should go and where that screen should be. Not for Moses. Moses said, no, every aspect of this tabernacle has to be absolutely right because this is a copy of heaven. Which, by the way is not like our church buildings. This church building is not holy ground. Uh, Our church buildings just are a place to to let us meet together, to let us do church. Always remember that. The church building is not holy. It's not a temple. You can have church under a tree. You can have it in a school hall. You can have it wherever you like, as long as you meet around the Word of God. But the tabernacle was designed to be a little bit of heaven on earth. That's what it was, a scale model of the real place where God sits on his throne. And so these verses in chapter 9, come with me now, describe what the tabernacle looked like. So look from verse 2. It says, And in the first room, which is called the holy place, were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain, the tabernacle was called the most holy place. It contained the gold altar of incense, the ark of the covenant, covered with gold on all sides, and etc., 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 and you can read on. Here is a really basic picture that uh, Troy found for me on the internet, uh, which you can't find on a typewriter, but there you go. So, and that is a picture of what the tabernacle would have looked like. And, and so what you see is there's these two rooms, the bigger room, uh, which had, you know, the lampstand, the table, all those sort of things like we just read about. But then there was the second room. Now that curtain, just for the picture's sake, is pulled across. That curtain was never pulled across. You would never be able to see into that little room where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so all of the things that are there in the tabernacle you read about in Hebrews chapter 9, they were all designed to remind Israel things they knew about God. So the Ark of the Covenant reminded them God has spoken to us, God has made promises to us. The gold jar of manna they kept there reminded them how God fed them when they were in the desert and provided for them. The cherubim, which are like little angel-like figures that were there, well, they remind them of God's glory and that God is actually with them because they only dwell in the presence of God. The mercy seat, you might read about that there, that was a gold plate that sat over the top of the ark and that was where the priest made the sacrifices. And so that reminded them, God is merciful. God has provided a way for our sins to be forgiven. So every aspect of the tabernacle, everything in it, taught them something about God. It taught them about God's love. It taught them about God's grace. It taught them about the fact that God is with us. God is in our midst, all these things. But even as it reminded them of those wonderful things, the way it was set up reminded them of something else. And I alluded to it before. It reminded them of their separation from God. See, all these things were behind a curtain where the people were not allowed to go. And so this reminded them, God is not to be approached lightly. So look at how it talks about it. Look from verse 6. It says, With these things set up this way, the priests enter the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. So that is only a few people, only people, the priests from a certain tribe. Most of the people never got to go even into the outer room. 
Only the priests get to go there. But then the inner room, verse 7, it says, but the high priest alone enters the second room and he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So you see, if all the objects in there that they would have heard about and reminded about, that reminded them of God's love, that reminded them of God's grace, God's mercy, God's presence, the way they went about it reminded them of God's holiness. See, these rules totally limited access. And so they reminded them that sinners like us cannot just wander in and say good day to God. Uh, only once a year, only one man, and even then only after sacrifices for his sin and everyone else's sin, only then could this one man go into the model of the throne. And we're not even talking about the real place. Only this one man could go in on behalf of the people. And so every time they went to the tabernacle, it reminded them of these two things. Yes, God is with us. Yes, God loves us. Yes, we can be forgiven for our sin, but also there is still this barrier between us and God. Look at how he puts it in verse 8. He said, The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. And that's because, just look down at verses 9 and 10 now, the old covenant only ever dealt with external things. It only ever cleaned your body, if you like. You see, this is the problem with the Old Testament. It couldn't deal or it didn't deal with the heart of the problem, which is, of course, actually our sinful human hearts. And so we were still waiting for something better. We were waiting for the real solution. That brings me to my second heading, which is the real solution. This is verses 11 to 15. So come with me to verse 11. It says, but... It's always important in the Bible when you see the word but like that, it's saying that's how it used to be, but now something better. And it says, but now the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come. It's saying, but now the real solution has come. And everything that was part of that old system was just pointing forward to this moment. What it did imperfectly, Jesus does perfectly. And so look at me at verses 11 to 14. I'm going to read them in full because they're really important to capture them all together. So verses 11 to 14. It says, In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, so it's saying not the earthly tent, we're up in the heavens now, he, Jesus, entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God? I hope you're seeing what it's saying there. I think the vibe is quite simple. It's just that those words, how much more? How much better is Jesus? How much they went into an earthly copy? He goes into the heavens themselves. They offered a sacrifice of goats and calves that could only ever cleanse your flesh. Well, Jesus offered himself, the sinless, perfect man, as our sacrifice. They had to do it over and over and over and over again. Jesus has done it once and for all. And as I've said many times, they dealt with the exterior, the flesh. Jesus has dealt with the core of the problem, our sinful heart. 
As you look at those verses, look again at verses 11 to 15, scan down them. What are the key words in those verses? Just look for a moment and think, what are the key words, verses 11 to 15? I want to say to you, the key words are all the timing words. Phrases like once for all or eternal redemption. See, because that's the difference between the new covenant and the old. New covenant, over and over and over again, Jesus once and for all, providing eternal salvation. Jesus' death has dealt with our sin once and for all. That's why it's better. He has washed us clean once and for all. That's why it's better. No more priests, no more sacrifices, no more tabernacles, no more temples. We have Jesus. Now, I've actually left dealing with this uh, until now in the book of Hebrews. We could have looked at it any time over the last few weeks, but I think now is a good time to address it from this chapter because it's so clear. This is why you do not need a priest anymore to approach God. That's why you don't need a priest. You can go direct to God because why on earth would you go through a person when you can go through Jesus? You don't need a priest anymore. The time for priests is gone. That's why I'd rather be called a minister or a a pastor or or Phil is actually what I'd rather you call me. But my job is to teach you. My job is to point you to Jesus. He is your priest. That's why it's so unhelpful when, when churches set up the minister as a priest as standing between us and God. People think, I need to go through the priest to understand God's word. You've got God's word for yourself. Read it. Understand it. That's why we don't pray to Mary. That's why we don't pray to saints. Why would you do that when you have direct access through Jesus? That's why we have to be careful of putting the wrong emphasis on the Lord's Supper. You see, as if something magical is happening when we share the bread and the wine, and especially the idea that many Christians get that somehow Jesus' body is being sacrificed again as we share the Lord's Supper. Though the Lord's Supper is about remembering the once for all death of Jesus that's already happened. I've made the comment a few times through this series that our temptation is not the same as theirs. I've said a few times, uh, very few of us are tempted to go back to Old Testament religion. We're not tempted to go back to being uh, Jews, worshipping in a temple, making sacrifices. I actually think, though, I've been slightly wrong, that temptation is there. Because sometimes I talk to modern Christians and, and they want church to go back to rituals. They want something more mystical. They want a different experience. They want to turn back to a religion that focuses on externals, on rituals, rather than a living faith in Jesus. Hebrews 9 tells us church is not about rituals. It's about knowing Jesus through his word. That's what it's about and responding to him in prayer and praise. Which brings us to the final part of our passage. So my last heading the better covenant. This is verses 15 to 28. See, the point is, now there's a new covenant. Now there is this new way for us to relate to God. So do not act like you're still under the old one. Look at verse 15. It says, therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Back in the Old Testament, in the prophets, prophets like Jeremiah promised God will bring a new covenant. And now Hebrews is saying that is what Jesus has brought. And under the new covenant we received, you see the timing word again there, what do we receive? An eternal inheritance. So important. Our inheritance cannot be taken away. It lasts forever. 
because Jesus' death has paid the price for your sins once and for all. Our sins are forgiven once and for all, so nothing can take away our inheritance, our place in God's kingdom. But just scan again through this uh, second half of the passage from verse 15, the first part for that verse as well. Do you notice how much it talks about blood? In fact, do you notice how much blood there was under the old covenant? Going to the, to the temple, going to the tabernacle was not for the faint-hearted. There was blood everywhere. And in fact, what the priest would do, he wouldn't just make a sacrifice off in that other room, he would then throw the blood out over it. People on our cleaning roster are very, very thankful we're under the new covenant because otherwise, you know, you'd have it all over. You're thankful every Sunday night, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be going out for dinner, you'd be going home for a shower because a goat would have been cut open and thrown all over you if you were still under the old covenant. Now, what was that about? Why so much blood? Well, we've seen repeatedly part of it was to pay the price for our sins because the wages of sin is death and so the blood of the animal was sacrificed in our place. But the blood also served another purpose. The other thing it did in the Old Testament was ratify the covenant with God. That's why we had that reading uh, that Jemima read from Exodus earlier on. It was about when God set up the covenant with Moses and to ratify it, the equivalent of the handshake, if you like, or signing the covenant, the signing the contract was they cut open an animal and splashed blood over everyone. As I say, I'm glad we're in the new covenant. I can't even handle getting my needle, but you know. So when God made that covenant, it is sealed by blood. But now look down at verse 18. It says, that is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And do you see what a graphic illustration that was for the people? Because when he threw that blood over everyone, that blood, that sacrifice, it showed you that's how serious this agreement is between you and God. You see, this is the seriousness of it. Blood needed to be spilt for this. And as we've seen a lot already, the blood symbolised the forgiveness and the washing clean that was at the heart of the covenant. Well, the sacrifice that ratifies our new agreement, our new covenant with God, is the blood of Jesus. Remember at the Lord's Supper, the night before Jesus died, you can go read Mark 14 later on if you'd like to and see it. Jesus gave them bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. He was talking about how his death had paid the price for our sins. But then he says, he gives them a cup and he said, this is my blood that establishes the new covenant. And he used exactly the same words that Moses used in Exodus. See, Jesus is saying, my death, my blood has brought a new deal with God. And anyone who trusts in me can have an eternal inheritance. And so the point of this chapter is, how much better is that new covenant, that new deal than the old? The new covenant that promises us total forgiveness once and for all. That new covenant that promises us a place in God's eternal kingdom, if you will just trust in the blood of Jesus. As I said at the start, all of this is wonderful, it's interesting, and hopefully you've seen the significance uh, as we've gone through it. But as we close, I want to draw out why this is so important. I joked before about not needing to clean up blood after every Sunday under the new covenant, and although after Kids Holiday Club maybe we did, but I don't know. But 
There is a seriousness to this. That's a joke, but there's a seriousness to this. Don't forget, you come to God through Jesus. You come to God only through Jesus. There is no other way. You only come to God by trusting in the blood of Jesus. And you come to Jesus by listening to his word and responding in faith. Don't go back to the old covenant. You do not come to God through priests. You do not come to God through rituals. Don't ever forget that. But the big point of this passage, and what I want us to take away is this. You cannot overstate how important, how massive the death of Jesus is. And that's where the chapter finishes down at verses 26 to 28. So come with me there now. Look with me at verse 26. It says, but now he, Jesus, has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. I keep stressing those timing words, one time. Jesus died one time to remove your sin. And that act, when Jesus died on the cross, has changed everything. You see how it says there that Jesus died at the end of the ages? What's that talking about? It's saying Jesus' death has brought history to a close. Every so often I read one of those books, you know, has 50 events that changed history or 50 people that changed history and they have, you know, Captain Cook sailing around the world. They have Christopher Columbus discovering America or the dropping of the first atomic bomb or whatever it is. They are all really important events but they are irrelevant compared to the death of Jesus. Jesus' death is the marker that ends time. All of history came to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The rest of history is just an appendix. We're just living in the mopping up time, if you like. Time as we had known it has come to an end. That is how important the death of Jesus is. And because of that, it tells us here, we are now waiting... (coughs) for what must inevitably follow. That's the point of verse 27, look there. It says, and just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, that's the Bible's equivalent of saying, you know, the two great certainties of life are death and taxes. The Bible says, no, you can get out of taxes. You're not meant to, but you can. But the two great certainties of life are actually death and judgment. That's what every person will face. Every person will die and after that, every person will face the judgment of God and they are still the great certainties if you do not trust in Jesus. That is all we have to look forward to if we do not have Jesus. But if you know Jesus, he says, there is now another great certainty, which is that he will come back and he will bring you salvation. Look at verse 28. Just as death and judgment are certain, verse 28, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Under the Old Covenant, they stood outside the tabernacle every year wondering, will that priest come out? They even would tie a rope around his ankle in case he didn't come out and they had to drag him out dead because you couldn't go in there, you'd drop dead. They wondered, will God accept our sacrifice every year? Well, we know that God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus and so now we are waiting for Jesus to come back from the heavenly throne room and bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. See, that is what it is to be a Christian. Firstly, the Christian looks back. We look back to what Jesus has done for us in his first coming. We trust in his death and resurrection. But then secondly, to be a Christian is to be waiting for Jesus. 
is to live this life longing for him to return and waiting for him to return, longing for it. That's why so much of Jesus' teaching is about being ready for him to come back. Have you ever noticed how many of his parables are about a master who goes away on a trip and whether the slave is ready or not when he comes back? Will you use the talents he has given you well or will you bury them and put them in a hole? Will Jesus find you storing up treasures here on earth or will he find you storing up treasures in heaven? Jesus tells parable after parable to make that point. And the wonderful thing is, because of Jesus' death, we know that he is bringing us salvation when he comes, not judgment, salvation for people who trust in him. The point of Hebrews chapter 9, right at the end, is let's be people who are found waiting for Jesus. That's what we want to be. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus has brought the new covenant, that his death has paid for our sins once and for all, that he has brought us an eternal inheritance that nothing and no one can take away from those who trust in Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that we would always look back to that wonderful event, the end of the ages, when Jesus came to pay the price for our sin. But we pray also that we would always look forward to his return, waiting for him, longing for him to bring the salvation we know he has won us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.